facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Got a really exciting show planned for you. I can't wait to dive into what we're going to talk about today. But before we do this, I'm going to give out the phone number, 888-914-914. Nine one four nine. That's a toll-free line to talk to me for free. 888-914-9149. You can also find me on the X app, Twitter slash X, although it's just X now, at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And you can email the program. Become a shadow producer. Got a show idea you want to send me, a link that you might want to have me check out. You can email me. The address is klcale at relevantradio. Dot com, And of course, the queen shadow producer is my wife, Trish, and she sent me something. I, I just had to talk to you about this because this is unbelievable. A, a brand new study just came out on near-death experiences, and it, it is quite shocking. And there is a pun intended in there, and you'll see why in just, in just a minute. Near-death experiences are something that I, I just find people are so intrigued about. Uh, There's been so many books that have come out um, in recent years about people claiming to have gone to heaven and come back, that sort of thing. What what can they really prove to us about religion and the truth of one's faith? You you might be surprised at this, but um, there's no shortage of people experiencing near-death phenomenon. And and this is is an intriguing study that has come out uh, in New York City, and CNN actually uh, had a, had an interesting piece about this, and and it kind of gives the basics of, of what happened here. And if you, by the way, if you think that you've had a near death experience or you know somebody who has, it'd be a great idea to call in right now and talk about it. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. And th- th- there's a case in particular that's mentioned in the article uh, of this guy who was 80 years old. His name was Aubrey Osteen. I don't know if he's related to Joel Osteen. Probably not, but Aubrey, who knows? Uh, Aubrey Osteen, um, and he um, had a heart attack in December of 2020. And the surgeons were just about to saw through his chest, saw through his rib cage so they could operate. And then all of a sudden, he's conscious. He's conscious, and he says, he says, quote, wait a minute here before you all go any further. Give me some more anesthesia, you know. Well, it took me a minute to realize I wasn't in the same dimension they were in, so they couldn't hear me anyway, end of quote. So he he then allegedly watched his body, and and, and he sort of saw himself weaving through his own ribcage and starting to float above the operating table. The surgical team cracked his chest open, like a walnut, I guess, Remove the heart and began to repair the damage. And then he and then he heard somebody say the word kidneys, kidneys. Both his kidneys had shut down at the same time. He said, quote, I knew I was gone. And that's when I went to the next level, Osteen says. When I got up there, he said, I was in the presence of God, a powerful presence with light shining from behind him. The light was brighter than anything I've experienced here on earth, but it wasn't blinding. And there was the sweetest angel that comforted me and told me, relax, everything's going to be just fine. And that I was going to have to go back, end of quote. So this happened two years ago. So he was 80 at the time. He's now 82. And he says that he, he feels that one of the reasons why he came back was that 
God sent him back to tell other people about his experience. So obviously he, he is somebody who has experienced a what are called what are called NDEs, a near-death experience. And this happens when a doctor, and we're going to talk about what there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of debate, there's a lot of conjecture about what constitutes a near-death experience. How near to death do you have to be? Well, we'll get into that in just a little bit. You're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. I'm wondering what you guys think about near-death experiences. What, what, what do they prove, if anything, with respect to the faith? That's, that's another intriguing side question we're going to look at as well. So there have been, and I'm not exaggerating this, there have been millions of purported near-death experiences since CPR was invented in the year 1960. And so in, in this piece, um, an NYU intensive care physician by the name of Dr. Sam Parnia was also interviewed about this um, because he, he's an author of a brand new study that talks about what he calls the hidden consciousness of death. Because what, what he did was he, he measured elect, electrical, it's really the first study of its kind that I know of, he measured electrical activity in the brains of people who are sort of in, in the process of clinical death and being resuscitated by medical personnel. And he said this, quote, this is Dr. Samparnia said, many people report the same experience. Their consciousness becomes heightened and more vivid. Their thinking becomes sharper and clearer. All while doctors like myself are trying to revive them and think that they're dead, end of quote. So this guy's a pretty um, accomplished physician, by the way. He's an associate prof at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine in New York City. And he said, he also said this, that the, these people who report these experiences, quote, have a sensation that they have separated from the body and they can see and hear doctors and nurses and they were able to report what doctors were doing to them in a 360 degree way that's inexplicable to them, end of quote. So this is, this is intriguing. This is intriguing. People reporting specific things that are being done to them while they are, they're out, they're, they're on the table. And here, that's not all. That's not all. Another common experience of these, these NDEs, these near-death near experiences, that people will often review their entire lives. It's almost like a, a this-is-your-life type of experience not a game show this is a uh, far more serious than that so i just had a little bit of coffee there i hope there is coffee in the afterlife all good things will be there right in the new heavens and the new earth but anyways these people will review their entire lives and they'll have these memories about things that happened in their life thoughts the, what they were thinking about what they were what they were feeling different events that that took place and they'll recall things, they'll experience things they've kind of forgotten about in their walking around life. And then they will kind of evaluate their experiences based on moral and ethical principles. And this is what Dr. Parney says. He says, quote, it's a global comprehension of their behavior throughout life where they can no longer deceive themselves, end of quote. Now, this is very interesting, isn't it? Because... Scripture is full of verses that talk about the fact that when we stand before Christ in the afterlife, everything we've ever done, 
everything we've left undone is going to be laid bare and we have to give an account to Almighty God. And, and we're not going to be able to fudge out of this. We will know whether or not we were acting in accord with the truth. And, and we're not going to be able to deceive ourselves and certainly not deceive God. So there, there's no point in even trying. It's kind of interesting, this idea that that in, in these near-death experiences, people are sort of having this, their life played out before them like a movie, and they know for sure, oh yeah, that, that, that thing that I did, inexcusable, there's no way I can justify that. They can no longer deceive themselves. But, but that's not all. That's not all. Dr. Parnia says that people also report seeing a God-like being. Seeing a God-like being. And he says this, quote, if you happen to be a Christian, you say, I saw Jesus. If you happen to be an atheist, you say, I saw this incredible being of love and compassion. All of this has been reported now for more than 60 years, end of quote. Okay, so th- these, are, these are common things that you hear about near-death experiences and what people are saying, what they're reporting. A lot of people talk about going towards a beautiful light, uh, just like the guy that, that I mentioned off the top, Aubrey Osteen, who had this near-death experience when he was 80. So what, it, it's interesting that, that no matter what religious background the person is from, they're claiming that their near-death experience kind of validates what they believe. So how much of this can we take to prove the Catholic Christian faith? We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. Again, bookmark that once again. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show. So here's, here's the study. Here's the study. It was just published last week on Thursday in the medical journal Resuscitation. I didn't even know there was a medical journal called I'm not a doctor, so that, that's no surprise to me that I don't know this, but a journal called Resuscitation. So there's a whole journal about that. Good uh, resuscitation practice, I guess. You know, there's got to be a, there should be a journal on resurrection. That's the one that we're really looking for. But I guess Lazarus could have, he could be profiled in this because he was resuscitated. People talk about the resurrection of Lazarus. It wasn't a resurrection. There was a resuscitation. Christ brought him back to life, but he did die again. He did die again. He's looking forward to the final resurrection. Anyways, in this journal, Resuscitation, it talked about how trained teams in 25 different hospitals in the U.S., in the U.K., in the United Kingdom, and Bulgaria. I, I know a, a doctor from Bulgaria, the, uh, Dr. Lou. He's a great, great guy. I don't know if he was in on this or not. But anyways, um, the U.S., the U.K., and Bulgaria, they, they, what they did was they went into rooms where patients were what they call coding. Okay, they're, that means they're sort of flatlining. They're technically dead. They are technically dead. So the doctors are doing CPR. And then the researchers, what they did was they, they, without disturbing the work of the doctors, without affecting their ability to try to resuscitate the individual, they hooked up devices to, to the dying person's head and brain. And, and how are they able to do this? How, how did they have enough time to do this? Well, that's because the resuscitation attempts would last for quite a few minutes, sometimes between 23, 26 minutes. Sometimes they would be performing CPR on a person for up to an hour trying to get them back. So incredibly intense. Nobody ever tried to do anything like this before. But believe it or not, this was successful. They were able to actually successfully measure the person's brains and what was going on in their brains while they're they're trying to be brought back, so th- this is pretty wild. This is pretty wild. So here's what um, Dr. Samparnia says from NYU. He says, um, 
they, they would they would measure brain activity every two or three minutes, and then they'd have to the doctors would have to stop their doing their chest compressions, stop giving electric shocks with the paddles. They're trying to see if the patient's heart would would start again. So they, he said there were quote there is no movement. It was a silence. That's when we would take measurements to see what's happening. We found that the brains of people who are going through death have flatlined, which is what you would expect. But interestingly, interestingly, even up to an hour into the resuscitation, we saw spikes. The emergence of brain electrical activity, the same kind of activity as you would have when you're talking or deeply concentrating, end of quote. Now, that's intriguing. That, that, that kind of jumps off the page there. And what kinds of, what kinds of brain spikes were they seeing? With their equipment, they were seeing gamma spikes. Uh, it's like gamma radiation, like the Incredible Hulk. I don't know. I don't think so. But gamma spikes, delta, theta, alpha. You sound like fraternities or something. Uh, all kinds of different brain spikes. Gamma, delta, theta, alpha, beta waves. And unfortunately, now unfortunately they, they had 567 people that, that were in the study, but only 10% of them, 53 people, were, were able to be brought back to life or resuscitated. Now, when they interviewed all the people that were brought back to life, um, well, not all of them, actually. Only 28 were, were interviewed. And unfortunately, only 11 patients said that they were aware of anything that was going on during CPR while they were being resuscitated. And only six people reported that they had a near-death experience. So probably not as many near-death experiences as, they, as they'd hoped for. But... What they did was they, they sort of took their experiences and they compared them to other testimonies of people who had near-death experiences. 126 other survivors of cardiac arrest. They, they weren't part of the study, but they had a near-death experience. And what uh, Dr. Sampar says was, quote, we were able to show very clearly that this recorded experience of death, this idea, this sense of separation, this review of your life, from, from, from the beginning to the end, going to a place that feels like home and then a recognition that you need to come back that was constant across people from all over the world, end of quote. So that this is, what, this is pretty intriguing stuff. So similar experiences being reported, no matter where you're from, it's the same type of thing. And people might say, oh, hang on here. These near-death experiences... They're just the result of uh, electrical impulses in the brain when you're under trauma. And it's the same thing as researchers can kind of poke different areas of your brain to provoke different responses or, or cause electrical impulses to be put on different areas of the brain. And they'll get, sort of get the result they're looking for. You can see a light or something like that. Not so fast. Not so fast. They, they took all, the, all the, the results of their studies and they compared them with Studies on hallucinations, delusions, illusions, and it was totally different stuff. It was totally different stuff. They were not the same kind of results at all. So Dr. Sampar says, we were able to conclude that the recalled experience of death is real. There's a brain marker that we've identified. These electrical signals are not being produced as a trick of a dying brain, which is what a lot of critics have said end of quote okay so there, there were there are also some sort of skeptics that were interviewed uh, in the piece as well who don't buy into this at all but I, I do think that um there is a lot of body there, there's a huge body of evidence now about 
near-death experiences. It's a thing. It's a thing. But what can it prove? What, what, what do they tell us, if anything, about the afterlife, about whether or not one's faith is real? We're going to get into that. We're going to take a quick break. But if you know somebody who has had an, a near-death experience or you want to make a comment on this, call in right now, 888-914-9149. We will be right back on The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. your mind off traffic and on the more important things in life. It's Kale Clark on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome back to the show. We're talking about near-death experiences right now. Major new study just came out on it. Very intriguing what people are reporting. A lot of similar phenomena that they see, experience. And again, the, the doctors aren't looking at this from a spiritual perspective at all, but this idea that people are sort of reviewing their life from what seems to be an objective perspective on morality, it sounds an awful lot like a last judgment, doesn't it sort of seem like that? And being drawn to a light, uh, people report different experiences, very often being told by a supernatural being that they need to come back and report to other people. We're going to go to the phones right now. Let's go to Susan in Phoenix. Hello, Susan. Yes, hello there. I'm just finishing a book that's very good, New York Times bestseller, over a million copies sold, Imagine Heaven, Near-Death Experiences, God's Promises, and Exhilarating Future That Awaits You by John Burke. Okay. And, and the foreword is one. by Don, Don Piper, the guy who ha- wrote the book 90 Minutes in Heaven, and there was a movie made about it. He was hit by a big truck, and uh, I happen mm-hmm. to have met the guy up in Michigan where I go in the summer. He's very, very credible and interesting. He and his wife, Ava, they're very committed Christians. Um, but anyway, this Imagine Heaven book by John Burke, I would mm-hmm. highly recommend it. I'm almost done, and it's a compilation of just what you're talking about, different near-death experiences, NDEs, he calls them, mm-hmm. uh, from all over the world. And they're, you know, documented by doctors and and very, very scientific, shall we say. Yeah, that, that, that's, uh, yeah, it's interesting because there are a lot of books that have, that have, there was a book that was written by a kid. I can't remember the name of that one either. That was also a bestseller. Uh, there have been a lot of books written by people that say that they've been to heaven, have had tours of heaven, that sort of thing. And and let's face it, even even the private revelations within the church, and, and the church has always said, the church has always said that private. You don't need to believe any private revelation. Uh, we ha- we have to believe public revelation. But uh, e- even the approved, for example, the, a lot of the approved Marian apparitions, like in Fatima, the three children of Fatima being being given a, a vision, a tour, if you will, uh, a, a peek into hell, as harrowing as that might be. And I do, I do personally believe that that happened for sure, but um, it's not part of the deposit of faith that you must believe as as a Catholic to hold the Catholic faith. It does fall under private revelation. So the the thing about private revelations like that is that they're very very difficult to to prove to other people. And, and there there are all kinds of people that say that they've been here, done that. And I'm not saying it's not true. I'm not saying it's not true. But but the problem is. It's hard to find objective evidence about that. So that you can present to somebody else who's a total skeptic and they'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, I totally believe that. 
So I just that's that's one thing I'm saying. I'm not saying they didn't happen. Okay, so get, don't get me wrong on this. I'm just saying that um, it's very hard to provide evidence other than testimony on, on this stuff. On this stuff, the question is, you know, is it a trustworthy source? Let's go now to Lynn in Florida. Hi, Lynn. Hi there. So I was just wanting to share. It was during COVID that, um, and my dad was also in the hospital at the same time, and we didn't think he would make it. I left the hospital, you know, went home, went to sleep, and uh, I was also recovering from it. So um, I'm not sure if I was maybe having, you know, maybe oxygen deprivation or something, mm. um, but. Um, I just, you know, had a dream that my dad was struggling, and, and I think I was thinking to myself, well, maybe, you know, God's allowing me to be there at his time of death somehow. Hmm. And I just remember, you know, a voice telling me, you have to help your dad get to the cross. And uh, my dad actually had a vision of the cross at the same time. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, so it's kind of interesting how that happened. But um, I helped him pick up the cross, and we went toward the light you know, that was, we were drawn to, and it was just this immense peace like no other. Like, you just can't even imagine um, that overcomes you. And then once I was like, oh, I'm all in, I'm going with him, Uh, you know, why would I go back to Earth with this, Um, this wonderful peace? That's when I kind of guessed for air, and I kind of felt my body go back into or myself go back into my body. And my husband next to me said, what was that big thump? And I'm like, I think that was me. (laughs) Um, I'm like, you're not going to believe what just happened to me. Um, So that, I mean, that's my experience. Um, I know everyone has a different one. Yeah. So, so Lynn, this was more of a dream or, or, or or sort of a vision. It wasn't like a near death experience. You weren't clinically near death or anything like that. So it's a bit of a different, different ball game there. Um, I was on oxygen at the time, so, you know, I, I spoke to my priest about it. He thought, well, maybe, you know, you could have had a momentarily, you know, um, you know, death, you know, type thing. But um, I survived all of that, and so maybe, you know, it was just a personal thing, like you were just saying. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and this this could fall into the category of a sort of a private, personal revelation for sure hey lynn thank you so much for calling and for listening to the program down in florida appreciate you calling and let's go now to pittsburgh i don't know if you're a steeler fan roberta but thanks for calling in thank you yes everyone in pittsburgh is a steeler fan (laughs) (laughs) it's it's very Um, true (laughs) yeah well i had two quick things um you had mentioned lazarus and Mm -hmm. my brother who's quite well traveled had happened to go to the town where lazarus traveled to after he was brought back to life by Jesus, because he was in great danger mm-hmm. where he w- did live, because the, the authorities wanted to kill him, so he was not evidence that Jesus, you know, got him to rise, um, you know, to come back to life. So he had to go away, and um, this town he went to had a church, you know, dedicated to Saint Lazarus, and um, he apparently. Um, witnessed at great length after um, Jesus, you know, brought him back to life, mm-hmm. um, you know, pro for Jesus. He eventually died an elderly man. But you never hear that part of the story. So I thought that was very fascinating. 
It's interesting because it, clear, in the Gospel of John, it, it does say that, you know, after Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, that was kind of the last straw for Jesus' opponents and, and the religious hierarchy in Jerusalem. And not only were they trying to kill Jesus, they, they wanted to kill Lazarus, too. I mean, they wanted to kind of suppress the evidence, if you will. And so he, he was a, a, a man marked for death, too. And um, interesting. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't aware of, of, of that tradition per se, but... Uh, it's Lazarus is an interesting. Um, I, I did I did a paper on Lazarus when I when I was in grad school, so it's a it's a it's a very meaningful account from the Gospel of John for me. So thank you so much for sharing that, Roberta. All right, let's go to Michelle from somewhere in Illinois. Hi, Michelle. Oh, hey, Kale. Yeah, comment and question. So um, I'm a convert. Um, I was Lutheran, and we confessed as a general confession. Um, but the one reason I became Catholic. Is because your sins are forgiven, like to a priest, mm. and you're absolved, which is a little bit unique, and that's what differentiates us. So, same thing, like G.K. Chesterton was quoted as saying the same thing. So, my question is, and I don't know if you know the breakdown of like those that had the NDEs, um, those that were, were they Catholic? Because to me, to go to confession and have absolution means my sins are forgiven and I don't want to see them again. And to see them again, mm. replayed in front of me would be hell on earth. I mean, it really mm. would be. Yeah. So I don't That's know intriguing. if you know, you know, I mean, I'm sure somebody's yep. done some <clears throat> studies somewhere about the breakdown, but you know what I mean? Like if you're Catholic and you are absolved, that's why our faith is so unique. So I don't it, you know. know that, Not that, that I want to see any, <laughs> I wouldn't want anyone to see their <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's you, horrible, but. No, it's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned this actually, because of course, uh, you know, the, the scriptures talk about God throwing our sins in the sea of forgetfulness and, you know, never to be brought up again once they're forgiven. And that's that's an interesting concept. I, I must confess that I haven't I haven't seen any kind of breakdown statistically about near-death experiences from a Catholic perspective as compared to anybody else from a religious perspective. And are they reporting different things on that front? I, I don't know. That's That is a... That's a, a great angle, and I think maybe some more research needs to be done on that. Maybe somebody has done research on that. I'm not aware of it, but if you are, call in right now, 888-914-9149, 888 It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. But I, I will say this, I will say this, that if you're in the habit of going to regular confession, you're, you're, you're in a pretty good, you know, kind of where you're at with God, and I don't think you need to stress about, about things, because you're kind of pr- presenting yourself before the tribunal, if you will, the the, the mercy seat of, of God all the time. And, uh, and you know, in that sense, you know, you can just kind of relax a little bit. It's a, it's a, it's a good, not relax, but, but you know what I'm saying. I think we, we kind of know if we're in the habit, um, kind of where we're at, and it helps us to to keep doing examinations of conscience, not only on a nightly basis, but but every week before we go to confession. And um, hey, it's it's a good practice for sure. Good good spiritual health. But let me say this though. Let me let me um, share with you what one of my professors uh, did uh, on this. A lot of research that he did on this. His name is Dr. Gary Habermas. Now, I was very privileged to have uh, Dr. Habermas for a couple of courses as a visiting professor when I was doing. Uh, some grad studies work, uh, doing my master's degree, and he is probably the world's leading expert on the resurrection of Jesus. Um, just ha- has just done so much detailed historical work on this, but he also has a has a big interest in near death experiences. And in fact, 
He co-authored a book along with uh, J.P. Moreland, who's a very noted apologist on near-death experiences, and it's called Beyond Death, uh, Exploring the Evidence for Immortality. And he, he does a really good job of explaining what we can prove and what we can't prove from these near-death experiences. But having said that, having said that, there, are, there is some... I mean, there's some stuff that it, the problem, it, it becomes a big problem for naturalists to carry on with their worldview. This idea that there's nothing more than this world. There is no supernatural life. There is no la- afterlife. These near-death experiences are a huge problem for people who only view the world through a naturalistic lens. They have no concept of a supernatural life. Let me just tell you, th- this is an actual case that happened. It was about a woman named Maria. She had a very severe heart attack. She was rushed to the hospital. Two days after this, okay, after a heart attack, she's hospitalized in the coronary care unit. She goes into cardiac arrest, and doctors obviously spring into action, and she says that she left her body. She had this experience where she left her body, and she claims that she found herself on the roof of the hospital. What did she see on the roof of the hospital? A sneaker. And she knew exactly where it was. She said it was on the north ledge of the roof on the third floor of the hospital. It was kind of worn out over the little toe. And the shoe had one of the, one of the laces was sticking out. And, and it kind of got caught under the heel of the shoe. So she wakes up. They bring her back. And she tells uh, one of the critical care workers in the hospital what she saw. And, and, the, and the worker, her name is Kimberly. She was kind of like, yeah, I, I don't buy this. But she did go up to the roof. She said, I saw the sneaker on the roof. Okay, so she went. She said, I'm going to check this out. So she went up to the roof, and she got to the exact place, and she saw the sneaker. She found the sneaker exactly where Maria said it was, and it looked exactly like she said it was going to look. And she said, there is no way that she could have seen that sneaker or known where it was, considering that she was clinically dead in, in the hospital bed. So that there are all kinds of cases like that. There are all kinds of documented cases like that. So Dr. Dr. Gary Habermas, my professor, he used to talk to us about this stuff all the time. And, and he, was, he was interviewed by a spiritual skeptic about, um, about his work in this area. And one of the things that he points out is that when you the, the best people to report about near-death experiences are not like in terms of making a judgment call about whether or not they're real, are not sort of just your average man or woman on the street, as you might you know, be picked uh, to serve in a jury or something like that, because they're non-specialists. You, you need to really talk to the scientists and doctors that are around these near-death experiences all the time. So when they, when they see something and they're like, whoa, this is pretty powerful evidence, that, that, that has a bit of a stronger weight to it. Um, so how, do, how does he define, how does Dr. Habermas define in a near-death experience. You know, how, how dead is dead, if you will. So he, he defines it as a state from which a person can be reasonably believed to be close to dying if there were no intervention. So, for example, if your heart isn't beating, your upper brain activity is non-existent. So the, the near-death experiences that have the most evidence are, are ones that, or the ones that are, I guess, best evidence for, for what we're talking about here are ones with, where there's no measurable heart function and there's no measurable brain function, sort of a flat brain, flat on the machine. 
because the EEGs, they only measure upper brain function. So he, he knows of, of two cases where the person who kind of fits into this category was near death, carried into the ambulance, they're on a stretcher, and then lying on the stretcher, they have, they have no, I mean, they're not in a condition to know what's going on around them. And, and they sort of say the same thing as what this, this gal Maria said. They, they claim to be above their bodies, watching the scene unfold, and they'll say things like, hey, well, I, I watched them load me into the ambulance. I was floating over the ambulance. Oh, by the way, there's a number that's printed on the top of the ambulance. And then they'll go check it out, and it's exactly the number that the person... Now, they're, they don't know. They're, they're, they're completely out of it. They're, they're being wheeled into the ambulance, and they, they're able to see a number on the top of the ambulance properly. Um, it, it, there's all, anyways, there, there's all kinds of cases. I'm just going give, to give one more here. One more. This is pretty. This is pretty wild. This is pretty wild. This is a girl who was brought into the ER, uh, comatose, no upper brain activity, and all they could do is really hook her up into, into machines. And and Dr. Habermas actually interviewed for hours the presiding doctor who worked on this particular case on this resuscitation. Uh, he said he talked to him for hours, and the doctor said. I would have given her about a 1 in 10,000 chance of living without any kind of impaired brain function going forward, no brain damage. I I give her about a 1 in 10,000 chance of being brought back to to the land of the living, if you will, with no brain damage. And I'd give her a 1 in 1,000 chance of even living, period. I mean, it was a really, really bad case. But a few days later, she she came to, again, spontaneously spontaneously without any kind of procedure nothing was done to her she just kind of woke up one minute she's lying in a coma the next minute her eyes are wide open then she looks up sees the doctor and says hey you're the guy who saved me thank you where's the other doctor what other doctor the tall guy without the beard the tall guy without the beard so the presiding doctor he was very flummoxed he's like oh i'll go get him for you so he walks down the hall grabs the guy, and they come back, and they start taking notes. And the girl tells them exactly everything that she's experienced over the last few days. And according to her, she says an angel took her to her parents' home a couple of nights before. Okay, so this is what, during this period while she was comatose. An angel takes her to her parents' house, and the girl describes what was going on at her house that night. Her father was sitting in this certain chair. What was he doing? Uh, she describes what her sister is doing, what her brother's doing, and then, well, what's your mom doing? Well, her mom was in the kitchen and she was making dinner. Well, what was on the menu? <laughs> Roast chicken and rice, the girl said. So when the parents show up, they, they get notified, she's away, come, come see her. They go to the doctor. They're absolutely thrilled. They're, they're beyond joyful that she's, she's alive. And then the doctor kind of pulls, her, pulls them aside and says, listen, I need to talk to you for a second. What was going on on this particular night? What were you doing in the house? Where were you sitting? What were you making for dinner? And it turns out this girl had every single detail right. All of it. So th- th- there's, there's all kinds of cases like this where people can see things that they have. N- there's no way possibly they could have seen this based on where their body was at the time and where, where they were in terms of consciousness or not. So that, that, this is a very, very uh, big problem for somebody who's a naturalist who who says that you know physical life is all there is how in the world can they can they know stuff like this you can say well you know 
Uh, if people are on certain medications, you, you might have a hallucination or the temperature or something like that could cause a weird brain function. But but you can't possibly know details like this that are outside of your body and outside of the building, a sneaker on the roof and what, what someone's making for dinner. And, and so this this is very, very troubling for those who do not believe in a supernatural reality. Let's put it to you that way. Let's put it to you that way. All right, we got to take a quick break right now, but we'll be back with more of your phone calls. 888-914-9149. It's Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Be right back. Explaining the faith so you can explain it to others. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Hey, welcome back to the Kale Clark Show. We're talking about near-death experiences. A new study just came out. Reported by CNN, uh, New York University doctor was able to measure the brain function of people who are brought back from cardiac events. And when they tell their stories, they're remarkably similar. And uh, a lot of you guys are calling in with your takes on near death experiences as well. 888 Let's go to Barbara in Green Bay. Hey, Barbara. Hi. My story is my daughter, who was almost four years old had a near-death experience when she had um, epiglottitis, which is a swelling of the soft tissue that closes the um, windpipe off when you're eating. Mm -hmm. And uh, she had that moment between life and death when she saw, as she told her dad initially, um, it was a a figure in white in an oval shape that told her that it was not her time to go back. So she shared this with her dad and said, don't tell mom, it'll upset her. Parents share. So he told me. And when she was about seven, she shared that. And he said the story was exactly the same. And then when my mom died, her grandma, we were sitting at church. Um, Father was with the two altar boys waiting for the casket to come down the aisle. And she said, she grabbed my leg and told me, and she, you know, I could see something upset her. She said, I saw grandma standing in the same place like I was, next to the same white figure. There was no face, but it was the same thing. And she said, Grandma's at peace. Mm, and she's yeah. now in her 40s. Yeah, th- thank you for calling in and sharing that, Barbara. And there, there are a lot of similar-sounding stories that you hear from people who have had near-death experiences. And you know what, Miranda, I want to I wanna go to... Miranda's working the phones right now for us. I actually want to go to Steve. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hello, uh, Kale. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. I'm glad I'm speaking to you. Uh, the last time I spoke to you, I called you Kyle. Please, please forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, you are absolved, my friend. Don't worry. I've been called much worse. I, uh, I think that something has to be um, called to mind here that should perhaps have more preeminence than um, these many remarkable stories. And I can't explain what is going on here. And I can't deny that there are some very remarkable um, pieces of knowledge that seem to be coming mm-hmm. from out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. But what I do deny, I deny what I deny is um, something I've heard concerning near-death experiences. If you, if this is true or not, I would like your confirmation or your denial, mm-hmm. perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I have heard that of of those who have near-death experiences, the great many have a sense that they are on the verge of entering into God's kingdom to be with right. the Lord forever, and that few or very few are on the verge of. Um, to be separated from God forever, into, into hell. Now this, as you know, is very anti-scriptural. 
So if we are to take uh, either the near-death experiences as being um, a source of truth or the, the, the Word of God as being truth, in the Word of God, it is few, at, at best, few are going to be saved. At worst, I would say very, very few are going to be saved. If you, if you read the mm-hmm. Old Testament especially, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, will be, you will be terrified, and you will think, how am I doing with the Lord? Because I don't know that I'm going to be um, one of ten or one of mm-hmm. uh, five or one of three or one of thirty. I don't know that. I mean, mm-hmm. I, try to do, I try to do well, but I'm not, I'm not sure I'm doing that well. Well, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question, Steve. So let me, let me address a couple of these things re- really quickly. Yeah, certainly, and, and we, we, don't, we shouldn't really be focusing on, on the numbers in the sense of how many people are going to be. I guess Jehovah's Witnesses think a certain number are going to be there. Only 144,000 are going to get to, into heaven itself. Uh, not the case. It's a symbolic number. It's in the book of Revelation that's been misinterpreted by people. In Revelation, also, don't forget that John the Revelator says that when he saw heaven, he saw a multitude that nobody could count. I mean, in other words, there's a lot of people there, a lot more than 144,000. Having said that, when Jesus it seems to indicate that uh, fewer will go to heaven than, uh, than will go to the other place, that could still be an awful lot of people when you think about how many billions of people have lived over the centuries. But... Jesus does say, he does talk about the narrow gate, um, and his apostles will also say, how many are going to be saved? You know, Tell me the number. You know, And he just said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Don't, don't worry about the numbers. Don't worry about other folks, what's going on there. Just strive to enter. And you've got to, you've got to fixate on yourself first and, and put your own oxygen mask on first and then worry about other people, which we should. We, we do need to. Um, I do want to address the question about, because it does seem like, especially when you read a lot of books on this, it does seem like nobody ever has a near-death experience of hell. That's, that's actually not the case. There are some. There are some. But, and not everybody that goes towards the light is necessarily going to end up in heaven either because we have to remember what St. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. What does he say? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, so when people say, hey, I'm going towards the bright light, it was pretty attractive, it was pretty cool. No matter where everyone has to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, I would imagine that's a pretty bright place, I would think. Uh, so that doesn't mean you're going to stay there. <laughs> but let, let's, let's pray that that's the case, you know, but... Uh, let me tell you what Habermas said, my, my professor, Dr. Gary Habermas, who's done all these research into NDEs, um, he was asked that question. How, how many of these near-death experiences account for hell? There are some. He, he said that there are some hell-like near-death experiences. There are people that report being in a lake of fire, something like a lake of fire, a, a world that's kind of like the Old Testament describes Sheol, the, the underworld, spirit creatures, uh, walking around, not not necessarily, you know, anybody you'd want to meet in a dark alley. So, but but there, there's there is it's a small percentage. It's maybe five percent of all the cases, but but there there are some, there are some. But and and here's his his general rule on this. Again, he said, and he but believe me, he would love for this not to be the case because he is a believing Christian. And there's there's a lot of evidence for the truth of Christianity, the resurrection of Christ. He's an expert on that, on this actual event happening in history. There, there's a lot of evidence for this, but most of the near-death experiences that we have good data on, they're not 
specific to any worldview. Okay, so what they are good at, what they are very, very good at, is is destroying the naturalistic worldview, that there's nothing more, that we're just biology, there's nothing more than the physical universe. So, but they, but they don't generally tell you which religion is the right religion. Now, there are near-death experiences where people say, I met an angel, or, or somebody say, I actually talked to Jesus and he told me to come back, it's not your time yet. But there are also a lot of other people. I'm just saying, this is what the data shows. There are other people who say, oh, I saw Buddha, right? That, that doesn't mean that, that, that that's, that's actually a real thing. So the thing is, Habermas said that he only accepts the near-death experience data from cases where there's real evidence that they saw what they said they saw. For example, I saw what my mother was cooking in, in, the, in, the, in the kitchen that night. She was making chicken and rice. And broccoli. I hate broccoli. Or whatever. So, or what was the number on top of the ambulance? The shoe was on top of the roof. And then they also pair that with stuff that they're saying about spirituality. But there, he said it's very, very hard to find cases where you can have some actual evidence where the data you can you can you can check them out. You can double check what they said, and they also talk about a spiritual thing. It's usually either one or the other. So it's very, very tough. It's very, very tough to find to find both. Because a lot of the, the data from a spiritual perspective, it, they've seen kind of nebulous things. I saw the light. And then what they'll say is, well, I interpret that as to what my own religion already is. Um, or if they're, if they're an atheist, they'll sometimes explain it away and say, oh, I didn't really see anything. So they, they, tr they tend to find things that fit their worldview. Believe me, I wish that wasn't the case. I, I wish every single piece of data that people said, I definitely saw Jesus. I'm now, and he said, join the Catholic Church. And I'm gonna, I got to do it. That, but that's not the data. So, um, so again, we just have to be very uh, restrained in what we can claim from these things, I think. Having said that, I certainly believe that the Catholic faith is, is true. That's why I'm a Catholic. But it's for other reasons. It's for other reasons. We're talking about some of those reasons right now on the Faith Explained program, our Jesus 101 series. What's the evidence for Jesus? So this is really, really important uh, other than this. Because, again, these are, these are subjective experiences, right? Sometimes we can find things in, in reality outside the person that we can compare it to, like the shoe on the roof, but most of the time it's subjective experiences. So we, we need more than this to, to put our faith in Christ and his Catholic Church. So that, that's just something to remember here. That's something to remember here. All right, let's go to Steve in Wisconsin. Hello, Steve. Hey, Kale. Many years ago, my colon burst. I was in a coma for a month, and I... They, they tried everything. They operated seven times, and I was dying. They were pulling the plug the next day. Um, that morning, everybody came in, my family, preparing for death, and I was on this cold plate. My temperature was very high. I was praying. I remember Hail Marys, like hundreds and hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. the, um, the doctor asked my uh, wife, what, or, or the nurses, he's, he's talking. He's saying something. His lips are moving. What is he doing? My wife said, he, well, he's praying Hail Marys. He often does that. And I remember praying what seemed like hundreds and hundreds of Hail Marys. Anyway, um, so Steve, every, what, everyone what, started what, praying. What, what did you see? We, we only got about 30 seconds, so tell me quickly. What did yeah. you see? Well, what I, Okay, what I saw was um, I, it was very scary. Um, my, legs, my legs were being pulled down into darkness, and my hands were up high being pulled into the light, very bright light. I was scared to death about going down, so I wouldn't do anything. I was just mm. looking up, 
And then the whole room, doctors and nurses and family, all started praying Hail Marys, and I came to. Whew. Wow. So, certainly, Steve, Steve, thank you so much for calling in and sharing that. Wow. And, and certainly, you know, we are in a battle. I mean, darkness and light are constantly striving. The enemy wants us to be drawn down into his world, if you will. And, of course, God is fighting for our souls and, and our guardian angels as well. So we've got to take advantage of those supernatural resources. And, again, I think what, what these near-death experiences do is they, they, they totally decimate the naturalistic worldview. They just, it just cannot account for this stuff. And I, th- I just think there's just too much evidence. So thanks for joining me today on The Kale Clark Show. Wow. Timory's up next. <laughs> Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.